Dear Witch and welcome back to the study of the book of Joel. Today we are studying Joel chapter 1 verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12. So let's just get into it. Joel 1, 2 to 12. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree it has stripped off their bark and thrown it down their branches are made white lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the lord the priests mourn the ministers of the lord the fields are destroyed the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The wine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Beginning verse 2, where Joel tells the inhabitants of the land to give ear. Basically, he's saying, all right, everyone, listen up. He calls in this verse on two groups. First, he calls on the elderly. Then he calls on everyone else. It's interesting that he makes a point of first calling on the elders. Deuteronomy 32, 7 says, remember the days of the old Remember the days of old, excuse me. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. Wisdom comes with age in most circumstances. Joel wants everyone to hear his message, but he makes sure that the elderly especially hear what he has to say, as they are the wisest and most likely to know the best course of action. Deuteronomy 32, 7 tells us to consult our elders on difficult matters. The elders of Israel need to hear what Joel is saying because they are the best equipped to lead the rest of them. There is an ever-increasing sense in the modern world that older people are nothing but a burden. The Bible, however, teaches something very different. When others lack wisdom, the elderly reveal their youthfulness. When others are in need of help, the supposed burdens become the bearers of burden. The elderly have had a lifetime of carrying their own crosses. So when the time comes, they are able to help others carry theirs. Joel is relying on the elderly of Israel because he knows how useful they truly are. The Bible has a lot to say about the wisdom of the elderly. As we discussed last time, Joel is very familiar with the Bible. Because of this, he is very familiar with the parts of the Bible that tell us just how useful the elderly are.
It is interesting that the elderly are the only specific group Joel cries out to. After this, he just says, give ear all inhabitants of the land. He calls out those who he thinks are going to be the most useful in this situation. Then he calls everyone else. Notice how he doesn't call on the leaders of Israel. He doesn't call on the rulers or the priests. He knows full well that they are no use. They had at this point in time become corrupted. You'll remember from last time that I said that Joel never explicitly named any of the sins of the people he was accusing. I believe that there is a hint of that here. Joel doesn't tell the leaders that they aren't fit to lead the people. He does, however, hint at this fact by calling upon a different part of the community. He isn't accusing the leaders of being unable to lead, but he is hinting at it. With age comes maturity. 1 Timothy 3.6 says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So Paul says that new converts are not allowed to teach. That's the context of that verse. Why is this? Well, it's because of the fact that new converts are not spiritually mature and therefore they may fall into the condemnation of the devil. They are young in the faith and are therefore immature in the faith. In the same way, those who are young in years of life are more um, are less mature than those who are older. That should be I know sir miss, excuse me. Paul doesn't give a time frame on what he considers a new convert. He doesn't say whether it's those who have only been in the faith for a few days or weeks or months or years or so on. I think that the reason why there is no specific time frame given is that it depends on the person. People mature at different speeds and in different ways. Some people may be extremely spiritually mature within a few months, whereas others may still be immature after a few years. However, generally, the older you are, the more mature you will be. And so, because of this, Joel starts out by calling upon those who are both generally more mature as well as spiritually more mature. Next, Joel cries out, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Now that he's got the attention of the people, he's about to tell them his message. When telling a story, storytellers often start with a hook. This is something interesting or exciting that happens at the beginning of the story. It usually comes in the form of an opening line. These are things like, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, in A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Another famous hook is the opening line of Dante's Inferno, which says, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself in the dark wood where the direct way was lost. Now, this statement is Joel's hook. He starts off after get, um, getting everyone's attention by crying out, have you ever seen anything like this? Has anyone in your family ever seen anything like this? This would have immediately intrigued the hero. What could this man be about to tell them that was so shocking? Verse three, here we, uh, here the, excuse me, hook continues. He says that what he's about to describe is so shocking that the story of it will be passed on for generations. 
Joel is saying, let the message I am about to give you be passed on for generations. Never forget it. Never let your descendants forget it. Verse 4. Here, Joel finally gets into his message. He says there that there was a few swarms of many locusts. These locusts came in and caused great destruction. It seems that these locusts represent God's judgment, or perhaps these locusts actually were God's judgment, and that's what I believe. I think that God sent a few swarms of locusts to devastate Israel as punishment for their many sins. They likely sinned in a number of ways. We know from the book of Hosea that the people had put stock into false gods, whether it be carved idols or other things. We also know from that book that there was a lot of false teaching, as well as a lot of general crime, such as theft and murder. So, the one true God punishes them for abandoning him and giving themselves to sinful lifestyles. In this verse, we see the great and powerful judgment of God. We know God judges despite what some so-called Christians today want to believe. We are used to the idea of God judging us on Judgment Day. And, of course, we, he will judge us then and it will be a great and terrible day. In his confession, St. Patrick wrote, Therefore I ought to worry exceedingly with fear and trembling the sentence of that day when none can escape or hide and all will have to give an account even of the smallest of sins before the judgment seat of Christ the Lord. Fun fact about St. Patrick, by the way, apparently he's not actually an official Catholic saint because the current Catholic doctrine surrounding the canonization process uh, had not yet been invented by the time he was alive. Anyway, this is just one of many examples of the ever-changing doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has a knack for making stuff up, and this habit of theirs is one that they are, unfortunately, going to have to answer for on that great and terrible day which St. Patrick was talking about. And they won't be the only ones. Much like the Roman Catholic Church, the nation of Israel had abandoned God and started to make things up. They started creating idols and ignoring the laws of God. So, when Judgment Day comes, they will have to answer for what they've done. However, God also judges, in some instances, before Judgment Day. What I mean by this is that he brings his righteous judgment down on people before Judgment Day. Israel is one example of a nation that faced God's wrath before that day. And what a mighty judgment it was. We see in this verse the frightening thoroughness of God's justice. He sends a horde of locusts to destroy everything they have. Then he sends another to destroy what's left, then another and so on. Like burning their possessions and then burning the ashes, God is sure to punish them in an extremely devastating way. This then raises the question of what hell will be like. If God's earthly judgment is so harsh, what must his judgment in hell be like? Joel says that there were many different types of locusts. He says that there was a cutting locust, a swarming locust, a hopping locust, and finally a destroying locust. I think this demonstrates the many different ways that God pours out his judgment on sinners. Verse 5. 
Here Joel calls upon drunkards. He tells them to get up and weep, saying that their wine has been cut off from their lips. This means that they will no longer have access to it. They, being drunkards, cared a lot about their alcohol and not so much about God. They gladly abandoned God, but would not abandon their sins. They clung to their drink, leaving their God. Now they have neither. God is pouring out his wrath upon them, and they cannot even pour out a glass of wine in order to dull the pain of what they're going through. They relied in the wrong thing for comfort, and now the one in whom they should have relied has taken away the thing they sinfully relied upon. When we replace God in our lives with some cheap substitute, God will remove, remove that substitute from us. Either he will take it from us in this life, or he will remove us from all pleasures, good and bad, in the next life, unless we are his people. And if we are his people, the Bible says that we will not abandon him for some substitute. God will not allow us to go astray. Going back to the confession of St. Patrick in verse at least I think it's in verses uh, 34, we read, I give constant thanks to God who has kept me faithful in the day of my trial. In hard times, it is God who preserves us. <coughs> Excuse me. We do not preserve ourselves. If we are sustained, then we are sustained by the strength of God. However, if we are not sustained, then we are not sustained because of our own sinfulness. Our sinfulness is present either way, but when one is saved, God preserves them. When one isn't saved, God doesn't preserve them. We either stand by his strength or fall by our own. These people fell down on their own. God was not holding these people, so they were able to fall. While the nation had once been a nation of faith, the individuals who were unsaved were never truly of the faith. Some may have pretended or even honestly believed that they were of the faith, however they were not. Because they were not of the faith, they left God, who they never truly followed, and went after other things. For example, these people went after alcohol, but now the alcohol is gone, but God remains. And he remembers how those who claim to be his people treated him. Verse 6. Here we see the nation, uh, our nation, excuse me, has come against Israel. The nation is compared to a lion. Now lions are, of course, rather vicious creatures. They are predators, which means they hunt and kill for uh, their food. They are efficient killers. In the same way, this nation was efficient in destroying all that Israel had. So, which nation was this? Well, it wasn't a human nation. Rather, it was a nation of locusts. The locusts that came against the land were so fierce that Joel describes them as being like both an army and a lion. This shows the devastation of God's wrath on sinners, which in this instance came in the form of the locusts. Verse 7. Here Joel says that the locusts have laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. 
this is both literal and symbolic. It is literal in the sense that it really did happen. Vines and fig trees really were damaged and destroyed. But it's also symbolic of the fact that God's own people, his chosen people, have been attacked and hurt. God allowed his people to be damaged due to their sins. The verse then says that the bark of the trees have been stripped and the branches have been made white. Again, this is both literal and symbolic. It is literal in the sense that it really happened, but it is also symbolic. It also symbolizes God revealing something to his people. The reason why trees have bark is in order to protect them from harmful forces. In the same way that the trees have bark, the Israelites have their own protection. That being their false gods. They have idols they worship and hope will give them health, wealth and prosperity, as it were. But now the bark has been stripped away. Now that supposed protection is gone. The Israelites relied in the wrong things for protection and now they're suffering for it. They should have trusted in the one true God for protection, but instead they trusted in man-made idols to protect them from the one true God. There is some debate as to the extent of how much a Christian should expect God to protect them. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common in man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One way I often see that verse interpreted is, God will never give you more than you can handle. But how true is this? How much will God protect us from? Well, it should first be noted that this verse is about temptation to sin, not general calamity. Obviously, God will never allow us to be in a situation where we are wholly unable not to sin. But what does that mean? Well, it means exactly that. God will never allow you to be in a position where sinning is the only option. That does not mean that you will never be tempted in any great way or that things will be easy for you. What it does mean is that if you ever look upon one of your sins and say, well, there was nothing I could have done about that or I could have done differently or something to that effect, you are wrong. If you give into temptation, it is because you gave up when you didn't have to, not because you had no choice. But what about general hardship? Will God ever give us more than we can handle in other areas of life? You've likely heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves. This is not true. If you rely on yourself for help, God isn't going to inject himself into the situation. And if you rely on God for help, there's nothing you can do to help that's going to improve upon the work of God in your life. God helps those who acknowledge that they can't help themselves. So, will God ever allow us to go through things that we cannot handle? Yes, but he will never allow us to go through something that he is not in full sovereign control over because he is in full sovereign control over all things. This means that if you call upon the Lord in hard times, if it is his good pleasure to do so, he can and will help you. 
if he doesn't help you, it's not because, or it is because he decided not to, it's not because he can't. God could have helped the people of Israel by either not sending them the locusts or making them do less damage or any number of other things. But he decided not to. He gave them more than they could handle without him. They relied on their false gods to get them through tough times. So God gave them a time so tough that only he could help them through it. God does give people more than they can handle. But he only does that to make the person realise how much they need God. We need to remember that God is at the centre of everything, not us. We exist to give glory to God, not the other way around. It's easy to get annoyed at God for not making life overly easy for us when we have a man-centred view of the world. When you are of the view that man is the centre of all things, it's easy to look at the pain and suffering that goes on in the world and think bad of God. But if you understand that God is the centre of all things and that all things exist to give glory to God, then we realise that just because we suffer, that doesn't mean God is not good. The creation exists to glorify the creation. This means that it has no right to question or insult the creator for the way he does things. Verse 8. Here the people of Israel are told to lament. Israel is compared to a woman who was married but has since lost her husband. In other words, the two were once young and in love, but now the husband is gone and the wife has to deal with life without him. This is similar to the situation the Israelites are in. They were once in a right relationship with God. But now they're not. God has withdrawn his blessing and now the people are left to get through life without them. Joel wants the people to lament in the same way as someone who has suffered a very tragic loss. They are not to put on a show and make it look like they are sad. They are to actually be sad. Verse 9. This verse tells us that God has cut off the grain offering and the milk offering. These offerings were the visible signs of communication between the people and God. By cutting them off, God is distancing himself from Israel. The verse then says that the priests mourn this. That is, the religious leaders mourn this. This mourning does not come from devoted people who are upset that they can no longer commune with God. Rather, it comes from people who realise that they will no longer be able to play the parts that they have been playing. As priests, they communicated with God. This gave them a position of good standing in Israel. But now that, they, now that the offerings have been cut off, the priests will no longer be able to act out their little pantomime. If the priests lose their ability to give the offerings, they will lose the power and respect their roles have given them. They will lose the high status upon which they built their lives. God was their ticket to power and influence. But now that's come crashing down. Verse 10. Here we see creation personified. The verse says that fields are destroyed and so the ground mourns and the grain is destroyed so the oil mourns. 
This shows the devastating effect sin has upon creation. When Adam and Eve sinned, the whole earth was cursed. Now that the people of God are continuing to live in sin, the land on which they live is paying the price. Sin is such a horrible thing that it causes everything to suffer. People often ask, how can hell be justified? They wonder how eternal torment is a just punishment for what they call finite sins. Friend, let me tell you, if there is such a thing as sin, which is not infinitely bad, I am yet to hear of it. The truth is that all sin is infinitely bad, even those which we might arbitrarily classify as small. All sin is infinitely bad and worthy of eternal death. It is so bad that it even causes the suffering of those parts of creation that are entirely incapable of committing any sin. Verse 11. In this verse, Joel tells the tillers to be ashamed because of what has happened to their crops. As the tillers, it was their job to ensure a good harvest, but they have failed. Their failure is entirely their own fault. It's true that they could not have known that the locusts were coming, but the locusts only came because of the sins of God's people. They are responsible for the failure of their crops, not due to any incompetence as farmers, but due to their sins. Finally, we go to verse 12. Here we see that all plant life is pretty much gone. Every plant has either dried up or been destroyed. And just as all the plant life is gone from the land, so too is the happiness gone from the children. All are suffering as a result of the sins of God's people. Everyone from the people to their children, even to the land itself, are all suffering because of what's happened. So what can we get from our passage today? Well, we can get a few things. Firstly, we are reminded of the respect we must, must have for the elderly. The Bible talks constantly about the wonders that come with old age, one of those being wisdom. Instead of looking upon the elderly with dislike, as so many people today unfortunately do, we must look upon them with respect. Secondly, we are reminded of the seriousness of sin. There is no such thing as a small sin. All sin is horrible and all sin has consequences. Thirdly, we are reminded of our place in the universe. We exist for the glory of God. If we sin against God in any way, then he has the right to punish us for our transgressions. Fourthly and finally, we are reminded of the righteousness of God. Our God is a God who deals justly with sinners. He is not this kindly old man that so many people today want to see him as. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he must be treated as such.